0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. In the spirit of tonight's episode, I've had a good idea. Why not head to the website, onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, get all your friends to do the same, and none of you have to miss another good idea ever again. That's right, on tonight's episode, we're speaking about really good ideas and how to take your hypotheses, work out your risks... Ask the right questions and get buy in for the results from a possibly sceptical leadership team. We also talk about the importance of building rapport with the audience and hear a surprising anecdote on the same, which almost certainly ended up with someone getting fired. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is the Product Doctor, also known to her friends as Julia Shalit. Julia started out just like me, working the telephones in a call centre before donning a product white coat and stethoscope in a variety of tech companies before moving into coaching and training others to be able to answer the deceptively tricky question, is my idea worth pursuing? Julia's against waste and wants to make sure everything we do counts. To support that, noble aim has recently released her already award-winning new book, The Really Good Idea Test, although time will tell if she'll regret not doing that test before agreeing to do this interview. Hi Julia, how are you tonight?
1: I'm very well, thank you. And how are you, Mr. Knight?
0: I am absolutely fabulous. Thank you very much for asking. So, first things first, the really good idea test has been out for a short while now. Very excited to see it's available in WH Smiths. Uh, although, obviously, that's something that will go over the heads of most of the audience, probably. But it's always good. To, you always know you've arrived when your book arrives in WH Smiths. How's the reception been so far?
1: It's been pretty good, actually. I have got a couple of favorite examples, right? My first one was a conversation I had with a 7-year-old. Okay. Whose mother had bought the book and was working through some new business ideas, and what I like to do is to offer people an hour or so, you know, for them to have a go at planning their really good idea test, and then they kind of throw it against my wall and we see what sticks. So I was doing that with her mother and her daughter came in the room and said, do you know, I really like this book. I've started to read it. Can I have a session as well? So of course you can. So I had a fabulous chat with her about a, a cookery proposition. I won't give anything away. And, you know, the thing that struck me at seven years old was she said, so it's like show and tell, right? So she's <laughs> in the classroom. She said, well, we do this all the time. You know, we, We we talk to other people about what we've done and we get feedback. And to her, it felt like the most natural thing in the world. So I thought that was a great bit of reception, unexpected. And another one I had, I was talking yesterday with a fantastic guy, I won't name him, and he is a very sort of senior professor in a very heavily scientific area. And I've been helping his science PhDs over the years to kind of turn their science into business and find real propositions that they could monetize and take to market and so on. And he said to me that he recently has been given an opportunity to work with some businesses and really develop some ideas. And he would not have had that opportunity had he not been in my workshop sessions because he hadn't quite appreciated what you do to take something from this kind of idea, and in his case, I would say invention, because these are the true inventors in our in our world, these scientists, these very clever brains, you know, and how you actually take that through to a value proposition that's then worth building a business around. So that was very gratifying, I must say.
0: No, I can imagine. I imagine it's very good to see it coming into practice and actually taking life. And I think the thing about the kids is really interesting as well, because I've heard a couple of people in the past say that we're kind of naturally good at this stuff to start with. And we have that beaten out of us by years and years of school and business and work. So you end up getting quite bad at it, which is why you then have to learn it all again. So hopefully the book will inspire a few people. But this is your first book, I believe. You've obviously been consulting and training for a while. But Did it feel particularly natural to write a book? I mean, have you always been a frustrated author or was it a real labour of love for you?
1: Well, I kind of spent a lot of years doing before I started helping other people. So I've a bit of a bee in my bonnet about you can't sort of coach and teach people things that you haven't really learned and done yourself. So somebody I spoke to the other day who used to work for me about maybe 18, 19 years ago, showing my age. And she said to me, she I'm not surprised you've written a book because you always had a process, which is funny, really. I did start off. One of my first jobs was process reengineering. So actually, it was on the anti-waste theme. And what my job was, was to take the paper out of the process and save the company a million pounds. Right. Which was what I did. (laughs) But it was all about improving efficiency. And she said that when she came into my team, I already had various processes for doing things and actually including asking our customers what they thought of her product, which was voicemail at the time. So I would say that um, as I've gone through my own work, I kind of developed these tools and ways of doing things that then I would use to help my team. And then I I worked um, on a project with UCL at University College London and they wanted to set up a sort of innovation course it was the explosion of mobile apps so the app stores had just kicked off and I was to pull together something called the Mobile Academy and it was to bring sort of real practitioners in to share their knowledge around business design and technology and I actually pulled this thing together, branded it, recruited teams of experts, and we had people from IBM through to students at the university attending as participants, which was great. And it was a a real interesting course where it was kind of almost in the end um, run by quite a few of previous participants who turned out to be experts in their various things and we brought them together. So because of that experience, I had to start turning what I knew into material, because after the first one, they said, well, hang on a minute. Why aren't you teaching on this? I hadn't sort of seen myself as a natural. I was more doing the branding and, and, and pulling the program together and helping people through it. And they said, no, no, you should be teaching. And I, I realized I should. So there we are. Um, and that's how it really started. Um, and then combined with sort of everywhere I went and every project I did, every qualitative research project I did, I ended up using the same structure to engage with my client and to go and research their idea. And eventually I created a workbook for some people I was running a workshop for. And I thought, well, this is the beginning of a book, isn't it? Um, And that's really, it was very organic, but it also was a way of, I guess, stopping me from having to repeat myself. And they, they call it now, I've got a lovely model, which is flipped learning. Do you know about flipped learning?
0: I don't think I do.
1: So the model of flip learning is you basically say, here, read my book, go and do what you can. There are templates in there and then come back to me and we'll have a workshop on it. So everyone's had a go. I guess my big sort of passion really is I don't want to stand there and teach people how to do this. What I want them to do is have a go and then we'll progress their real project. I don't ever do, try not to do workshops or anything like that without people bringing in and working on their own stuff. So I want people to fast forward in their own plans and do something really practical rather than just sit there and be, be be talked at.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I hadn't heard it referred to by that name before, but obviously the concept is really valid and something that I try and do as well. I hate even like for me when I'm learning stuff, going through loads of theoretical things up front in a classroom or something, I want to read around and I want to do some research on my own and then ask questions. So it sounds like that's a natural extension of your teaching that you've progressed with. But I understand you've already won an award for the book, which is a fantastic effort. Uh, What was the award? And do you know who you were up against?
1: Yeah. So there were, um, as I understand it, there were 500, over 500 entries. Wow. So Pearson, the publisher, gave me a number of Sort of book award competitions that they, as an international publisher, considered to be worth going for. And I, and I went for this particular one, it's called Axiom, and it was out of the States, out of the US. So um, there were a number of different categories, and the category I went for, which was a bit of a tricky decision, because if you can imagine, you're applying to, you know, sort of entering your book for an award. And you go, which categories shall I go for? You know, do I go for innovation? Or, you know, do I go first? It's not quite startup. It's it's for anybody who's trying to test any idea out, even if it's uh, in more in their personal life. If you think that you might be wasting your time, effort, or money, you know, that's what to go for. But in the end, I found this category called business reference, which sounds perhaps a bit dull. But then they put a slash and they said, how to. I thought, great, this is it. This is it. It's a how to book, isn't it? you know and it it really is it's not theory it's it's you've read it you know it's very practical so yeah
0: so uh, do you have a trophy or anything like that or I, th- I think you showed me your medal last time if i remember rightly so is, is, that, is that in a frame somewhere now or
1: it's behind me
0: oh actually yeah i can see it i you can see it. it
1: my book sits behind me like my conscience right so about <laughs> always keeping customers and users at the center of everything
0: and then the medal sits on, on top of my seven-step diagram. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so one thing we chatted about before this was that product discovery, validation, asking people the right questions, doing interviewing, all things that are in the same ballpark as your book. It's something that's becoming a lot more popular these days. There's a lot of books around it. And I'm definitely not going to name them because this is your time and I don't want to give them free publicity. But there are a bunch of books out there these days. Why should people read your book? and not any of those other books.
1: (laughs) Oh, dear. Do you want me to pitch? Right.
0: Or insult, you know, either or. That's fine.
1: I, I guess, first of all, it is all based on sort of practical toolkits and tips that I've used and that I've helped other people to use. So this has been written by me and all the people I've ever worked with. Okay. That is a whole lot of people. So it's very much kind of proven, if you like. And there's also some things in there that are sort of very unique thoughts. Now, the funny thing is that, you know, I would argue that nothing is ever very unique. So I would say that probably a lot of people have come to the same conclusion as me. So I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to say that I haven't taken it from anyone else. I've taken it from myself. So I have a, a couple of things in there that are as I say, quite quite different, but very, very quick, and very much shortcuts. And I've also seen an awful lot of what doesn't work. And so throughout the book, I give not only sort of good practice and top tips, but I also give common pitfalls. And I wonder if that's a, an approach that is also a little unique.
0: Sold, I'll buy five. But let's talk about some of the themes from the book. So the core value proposition of the really good idea test is to help you find out if your idea is worth pursuing. So top level, how does the book help you do that specifically?
1: There are seven steps to go through. And as you go through each step, you complete what you've said into a template. By the end of step five, you have a research script, okay? And by the end of step six, you have also a very good checklist and you've practiced your research skills. And by the end of step seven, you're summarizing and analyzing your output and you're ready to make your decisions. So it very much goes along with you.
0: So those seven steps, are they all mandatory or can we kind of skip some if we're a bit short of time?
1: I would say that even if you you think you're done, you have a a little read through. This is not a terribly big book, right? (laughs) So a step could be just a few pages and you need to read through. Now, the the point about the seven steps is you do need to sort of start at one and end at seven. But there's a little circle that you do. So as you would with any kind of research, you kind of write your research objective up front. And I call that about writing hypothesis. Again, hypotheses is, is a very common and well understood term but I don't think it's done necessarily terribly well so I I have guidance on how I break that down but you write your hypothesis what is it you're actually trying to achieve what's your overall big goal what problem are you solving for who what action do you need them to take and kind of what's the nub of your idea and that's your hypothesis that you start with now once you start working that through and you start going okay What are the riskiest bits of that in step two? And what questions do I need to ask in step three? And then who should I recruit and speak to in step four? Once you start doing it, you start going, oh, God, do you know what? I'm in risks. I do already know that. I don't – that's not a risk. I have got enough evidence of that. And you'll start to say, well, actually, no, what really is my biggest risk? Oh, is it about how people feel, think, and are going to behave? Did I even know I could test how they're going to behave as a future state? You know, and as you start to do this, you'll find yourself circling back. Um, I tried to create a diagram that showed you could go back and forwards. So I have kind of solid lines going one way and dotted lines going back. But what I could have done and I played around with was doing little loops within those seven. So you might circle around one to four and keep going, you know, but it got too complicated. But certainly it must be done chronologically, but you can still go back and forwards.
0: So that thing about loops is actually really interesting, and maybe something we'll come back to a little bit more when we start talking about waste. But there is, amongst certain types of people in certain types of organization, this fallacy, as we'll call it, because you know we're on the side of good in this discussion, but there's this fallacy that some people will come up with that is like, we don't have time for any of this stuff. Yeah, this stuff takes time. It's easy to get bogged down and go into those loops and maybe infinitely loop and never actually make a decision. So if someone comes up to you, I mean, you're a consultant, you're a trainer, you go into these places and you try and help people with their decision-making processes. If someone comes up to you and says that with a straight face, what's your answer to them?
1: My first sort of premise is, look, you know, you're know, you a product person or you're a founder and your job is to be the voice of the customer, right? So in order to be the voice of the customer, you have to understand them. So let's, let's accept that first of all. Because if you're not going to do it, who is? Then the second premise, I guess, is how do you make decisions? Are you comfortable with making decisions that don't have evidence behind them? So the term, again, I, I thought I made up, but I didn't. Um, evidence-based decision making, you know, is is quite a common thing. Let's make decisions based on evidence. Then you say, right? So you wouldn't want to waste your resources and make all these decisions based on gut when you know it could be very costly to fail later down line. Do you? So then we agree evidence based decision making. And then we have a discussion about right, what is enough evidence? And this is one of the things that comes up the most, one of the most discussed things in the seven steps. And what is enough evidence? And I I put a number out there, I say, okay, so there's a couple of ways of testing it. First of all, let's appreciate that we will never, ever be risk free. Okay? So, what did I say yesterday in one of my webinars? You're standing at the altar. Will you, will you take this person to be your lawfully wedded for life, right? That's a bit of a risk, okay. But all right, we'll try our best, okay. But nothing is ever risk-free. It's pointless to think that it is. You don't know what's going to happen. And, of course, you've got your whole implementation. The thing might not work, right? So we know it's not going to be risky. But at this point in time, what level of risk are you prepared to accept? Is that 70%? Let's put a number on it. Some people can deal with numbers, 70%. Some people deal with an emotional thing. So I say, look, it's like that, you know, stone that you left unturned. It's the one where you wake up in the middle of the night in a bit of sweat going, oh my goodness, I don't feel comfortable about that. I'm feeling really dodgy about making that decision. But it's enough to wake you up in the middle of the night and it is emotive. So it's about that level of, of risk. So those sort of three things combined are the conversation that we have. And then, of course, just from a practical point of view, listen, spend two weeks doing this to avoid a hell of a lot of waste.
0: But do people really need to do this? I mean, what about the inspired hippo in the room or the lesser spotted product visionary leaders of the world that they just, they're just amazing. They've seen Steve Jobs on stage. They know what this is all about. They just need some, they just need to sit there and have a flash of inspiration and a eureka moment. What do you think the chances are of those people succeeding?
1: I always say uh, one in a million (laughs) you know and these people exist my goodness and a lot of I've met a lot of people who've made some sort of lucky or good instinctive decisions without necessarily having the evidence and I'm not going to take away from that but can you honestly sort of look yourself in the mirror that's another one of my techniques and say you know you really feel that you're one of those people
0: (laughs) yeah I kind of liken it to it's possible to win poker with any hand, right? Effectively. But at the same time, if you go all in all the time, then you're going to lose all of your money pretty quickly. So it's a very much uh, uneven equation. But one of the things you talk about obviously is creating a good hypothesis, something to be tested, and some of the steps that you can use to do that. And on the subject of waste, as obviously we've been talking about before, not wasting that time. A lot of people, when they when they try to create a hypothesis, or when they do create a hypothesis, they kind of create something that they already think they know the answer to, and then all of their efforts are then turned towards proving that as quickly as possible. So what are some ways that you, as someone trying to come up with a good hypothesis, can actually ensure that that is actually a good hypothesis that can be tested and that you will learn from versus just trying to reinforce the biases that you already have?
1: Throughout each of my seven steps i offer up ways to sort of remove that bias and uh, they they do exist at every step so the obvious place for example is how you ask a particular question right so how to stay neutral and how to actually almost kid yourself that you're not invested in the in the thing that you're seeking the answers to right so I have a few techniques right the way through. Another way of doing it, another technique I have is to measure and score the answers that you get. So before you actually go and ask the questions, you work out what your measures of kind of good look like. And it becomes a sort of objective exercise. I remember when I was young and it always makes me laugh that there was a particular person's house I never wanted to go to. Nothing sinister, but just I just didn't like them. I didn't want to go. So every time I was due to go, I kind of went into my, my parents room and I said, look, i got the most terrible stomach ache. I really can't possibly go. And I played it so well. I actually gave myself a stomach ache. Right? <laughs> I convinced myself. And it's when you go into your interview, there's something I do in the opening of the interview that basically states your neutrality. And there are ways of doing it, so for example, you might say, "So what we're going to do in this interview, I'm going to share, ask you a bit about this thing that I've recruited you on, whatever it really is. So, I'm going to ask you a bit about it. And we're going to talk around some of the things you do to kind of perhaps address it today and how those things work for you and then i'm going to, I'm going to show you an idea, okay, But when I show it to you, I want you to know that I've got a lot of ideas. This is one of many ideas. If you don't like this idea, that is great because honestly, I've got loads more to get on with. So really, this is about you being as honest with me as you possibly can. And what's more, you know, I I did say I really appreciate your time on this. And I did say I'd give you a £40 voucher for helping me on this and for your time. But I give you this voucher now as a thank you for your honesty.
0: Yeah, that's obviously a really interesting framing. And I know that there are other, again, unnamed books which talk about some of the ways that people will try to please you in their responses as well. So trying to frame it in such a way that people think you don't care as such, or not that you don't care, but that you're not going to be offended. I think that sounds like a a really good technique. But some people can be really bad at asking questions like, Obviously, you've got lots in the book about writing good questions and working out what to answer, but some people are just naturally not very good at asking questions. How do you make sure that you're asking the right questions and that you're not just reinforcing the biases that you went in with? You know, you framed it like you just said, they shouldn't be afraid to give you an answer, but you still have to ask the right questions. Yeah. So I-
1: I'm going to level with you now, Mr. Knight, and I'm going to tell you that not everybody should go and do their own research. <laughs> so there are some people who should never do this, right? I would love to have a chance at helping everybody to do this, right? But just like the percentage of risk, right? There are always going to be a percentage of people who can't do it. And you can imagine what sorts of roles they, they actually fulfill or where their backgrounds have been. But I can also tell you that anybody who is a good product person or a good marketing person is probably a good people person, right? And, and that's where this really sort of comes from, right? So I do think that product slash product marketing people should, by their character, be able to do this.
0: That's interesting, actually. I remember her quite some time ago now having a good discussion actually for this podcast with an autistic product manager who, well product leader actually, and obviously that in itself threw up a lot of questions because of course not everyone is comfortable dealing with some of the traits of an autistic person, some of the ways that they'll conduct themselves and comport themselves in an interview and actually what he said is that in certain situations he'll like go in with the UX person and let the UX person lead so that he's still there getting the input and understanding what's going on and getting it from the horse's mouth. But at the same time, that let's call it what it is, the interviewee is more comfortable dealing with someone that acts more like they expect. So I think what that really boils down to and what you've touched on is really that you have to put the right chess pieces in the right place at the right time.
1: So I also have um, in the book, and I, I love that example you've just given, it's perfect. Um, In the book, I have an exercise called the interviewer's workout. And um, I ask people to do a couple of things. The first thing I ask them to do is to practice their full research script with someone. It doesn't have to be a target customer. It just has to be someone. And in this case, I don't even mind if it's someone very close to them. It doesn't really bother me. But practice it. You're not just checking the flow of the questions, but you're checking How you've worded the questions, and you're also checking how you ask the questions, right? And there are particular suggestions I make as to how to get feedback from that person and to see how kind of good you are. The other thing I always recommend is that every interview, including your practice runs, and I think you should have three practice runs, incidentally, should always be recorded, audio recorded. And it's another Potential bone of contention that I'm really happy to, (laughs) to discuss and take anyone on with that. Recording issues are primarily so that you can actually listen and interact with the person that you're talking with, right? Primarily. And listen for all the clues that you might miss and all those weird interruptions to the flow if you're writing stuff down, but also an opportunity for you to listen back to yourself. And I can tell you, yeah, I I listen back to interviews that, that I've recorded because I'm obviously taking notes and analyzing the results I've got. And I hear it in myself after, you know, a good 15, 20 years of doing research interviews. You know, there'll be occasions where I think, God, I really led that. That that wasn't right. Or I showed joy at that response. That was completely wrong. Right. <laughs> so you've got to sort of develop yourself and you've got to keep going with it
0: yeah and i you don't have to tell me about the benefits of rehearsing because frankly, for this podcast and for all of the interviews that I've done, I've written stuff out and rehearsed it two or three times when I do webinars, I do the same. I think it's I never used to do that, and actually it is so transformative. Are there any examples from your career? I mean you've been consulting and training and teaching as we say. Any examples from your career, maybe earlier on before you got really good at this stuff, where you went ahead with a really bad idea and what happened?
1: Hmm. So, um, <laughs> So I suppose you'll never know it's a bad idea if you never got to launch it.
0: <laughs>
1: I suppose. I had what I thought was a great idea. I invented Snapchat.
0: Excellent. How many years before Snapchat was that?
1: About two. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this was a a great, uh, not great experience in a corporate where one of the products that I managed was picture messaging. I worked for a mobile operator, as you said. And we were asked to sort of go innovate, literally. We're going to have an away day. You've got two weeks. Come up with some ideas. And that was it. Right. So I did my user research around picture messaging. I went and spoke to a lot of people. I observed. I did all the all the good things. And I realized that a lot of pictures were taken but not sent. And I also realized that people started smirking, not smoking, but smirking when they spoke about it. And they were all the sorts of messages, pictures that you wouldn't want to be sent around. Right. You get my drift. So the obvious thing, you know, sex sales was going to be to make a a sort of self-combusting MMS. So you'd you'd send it, some receive and it would disappear. That was received with a not on strategy response. And that was just the most painful thing. So one of the things I do when I work with decision makers in businesses is to say, look, you've got to create the right environment to get your product people and people on the ground to be able to innovate. And you've got to set strategies as well as culture and behaviors that actually they can pin things to. Don't tell people to go and do it. The other thing I went to the same away day with was uh, the idea that your <laughs> your mobile phone would become your remote control. So you would actually use it to make all sorts of things happen Right. To control your surroundings. And I'm talking about probably, gosh, was it, you know, late 90s, maybe. So really quite early on. So that was another interesting concept. Again, sort of no, no appetite for that. I'm, I'm sure I've made mistakes. Oh, the funniest mistake was made when I and I took over picture messaging, actually, because um, somebody had decided my predecessor to run a campaign and the campaign was to the customer base to say, right. You've got one of these cameras. You can take pictures on your phone now. You've got a camera phone. So why don't you take pictures and send them to us? And every week we'll pull the best picture, you know, out of the hat and we'll give you a prize. I can't even – I don't think I could even tell you on this podcast while we're recording the sorts of things that got sent in. I don't (laughs) think I I could. But uh, that campaign was pulled very quickly.
0: That's interesting, though, the idea, of course, that you came up with what was probably a very good idea, maybe not at the time, maybe the timing wasn't quite right, but obviously not on strategy, like you said. So you've actually then been overridden by that hippo, effectively, right? So the some senior stakeholder said, okay, well, I've looked at your research, or I've looked at your logic and your reasoning, you've tested your hypothesis, you said it was all good, but actually, I'm just going to say no anyway, which is obviously a challenge and almost the opposite end of the timeline from someone just wanting to make it all up themselves at the beginning. I mean, is it possible to fight against that with anything, you know, data or otherwise? Or do you think that in some cases, if we think of, say, the innovators dilemma and people getting caught with their pants down, not being able to basically, you know, Kodak versus digital cameras or Netflix versus Blockbuster, like, is it always going to be that Whatever or however good your research and however good your following of your seven steps is that there's always that chance that it's gonna to get torpedoed by some hippo that just doesn't just doesn't get it.
1: Yeah, and, and this is why, right up front, in the first step in as you write your hypothesis, you're steered by me to write your goal, right? So what does good look like? What does success look like? And that links to strategy. And if you're not sure about strategy, go and ask the people, walk into their office call them up email, them, ask them before you do it. Don't waste your time. And that is my big thing, isn't it? Anti-waste, you know, only because I've been there and, and suffered from the, from the consequences of it. And I've always been a person who is not afraid to go and confront and speak. And, and it doesn't have to be in a combative way. You know, you can walk in very nicely. Oh, I, I've got this idea, I'm going to work on it. But before I do, can I just check that it's on strategy? Because if
0: it's not, what's the point? Yeah, that's obviously fair enough. But there's also the potential situation where you start off down one path that maybe is on strategy and you find some adjacent opportunity, which is maybe much more promising. Like you say, maybe you're doing something with some element of pictures on a phone and then you decide that actually self-destructing is of the future and get told that that is. So I guess, again, it's all about just Trying to show your work, and ultimately, if you're going to get overridden by the people higher up the chain, then that's it's their company, right?
1: Right. But if we are talking about this early idea stage, we're talking about very quickly going out and getting evidence to test your idea. It's a very quick thing, it's a very low investment. Someone asked me the other day, you know, how much does it cost to go and do that? Well, actually, you know, in the most cases, I believe in incentives, right? Incentivizing people to talk to you, but framing it in the way that I explained and setting out neutrality and so on. So, you know, we're always we're all really good at video now. So, I'm, I'm very up for video interviewing customers and users and doing it that way. That's very low cost, you know. And and if you skip through this um, and and really follow the the tips and use the templates, you know, you can have this done in a couple of weeks right, we're not talking about a huge investment here. And the decision makers in the organisation need to understand that if you're going to search for maybe adjacent or transformational changes, you're going to have to allow people a little bit of budget and a little bit of time to do that, right? So, yeah.
0: Hear, hear. You said before this call that in your telesales career, you learned something interesting from the top seller at your company, but you wouldn't tell me what it was. And you said that I might get the chance to ask you on tape. And the main thing I learned working on the phones, which is, as I say, how I started out as well, was I didn't want to work on phones anymore. But what was the lesson you learned from that top seller?
1: Okay, so it was hardly the beginning of my career. That's what I'll say. So let me frame that. Um, This was a, a temping job whilst home from summer university. I would never sit still, always wanted to do stuff. And I was going down to uh, Mornington Crescent and sitting in an office and being paid nothing to do some telesales, right? And I was to, believe it or not, my job was to get an, an auto car and motor magazine and to find people who'd advertise their vehicle for sale and to call them up and try and sell them, right? <laughs> to advertise elsewhere, right? It didn't last more than a week, by the way. But the guy that was the most intriguing in the office, he was unbelievable. So he was kind of like a hippie-looking guy, right? And he, he just wore his socks in the office, you know. His, he was cool, an older guy. And he would adopt the accent of the person that he was speaking to on the phone, <laughs> right? And he got the most sales in the office. So I was hearing the most fantastic Indian accents, for example, had accents from all over the world. And they changed the call to we spoke to. And it was unbelievable. And I, I realized this kind of idea of trying to make the person that you're talking to feel so comfortable and feel something in common with you. Right. So, you know, when you're interviewing somebody and you're getting them comfortable in talking to you, you know, it's very interesting to be able to find something similar. If you can say to them and not make it up, but if you can find some kind of common ground, gosh, yeah, I relate to that problem as well, you know, or whatever it is. You know, you endear yourself and they will feel more comfortable and more happy to sort of trade information with you. So I thought that was an interesting lesson and and that's not in my book.
0: There you go. Bonus value-added content. It's interesting, though, because I, I know what you mean, and I think that making people feel comfortable and almost in some cases trying to go for a kind of conspiratorial mood as well, like they think they're telling you something, they think you're on the same side, right, which is a way to bond. I guess the problem I would have with trying to put on other people's accents is they might think I'm taking the mickey out of them, yeah. and uh, I don't think I'd be comfortable with that. But I, again, the this the fundamental point is definitely a good one. So where can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more, maybe find out a bit more about your book or just your work in general?
1: Well, I have a website, productdoctor.co.uk. I am always up for conversations. So if anyone wants to get in touch, particularly if anyone has gone and bought the book, it's on all the major book retailers, as you would hope. (laughs) Um, But if anyone does want to get in touch, I would love to hear from anyone who has the book. And I'm more than happy to to give you some complimentary sessions as well. Um, I have a couple of complimentary sessions available each month. For people who've had who've got the book and have really had a go, that's what I want is people who've had a try, and you can also find the templates on my website. So and they're in a sort of editable PDF format. So you can start filling them in, download your own set. And I would say LinkedIn as well. Um, I've realized that you know it's very difficult and time consuming to try and start communities and and keep everything going actually linkedin is is really the place where i i kind of live online
0: i will link that all in and hopefully you'll get a crowd of people rushing in your direction that's been a fantastic chat so obviously really appreciate you taking the time and helping to unpick some of the mysteries of finding out if things are really good ideas Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch but as for now yeah thanks very much for taking the time
1: thank you so much
0: Thanks for listening. I hope it turned out to be a good idea. If you want more of this kind of thing, I've got interviews with thought leaders, practitioners, and much more on the website onenightinproduct.com. So please take a look around, sign up or subscribe, and share with your friends so they can join in on the fun too. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.